Ideas matter. Ideas matter. This is Dialogue. Hello and welcome to Dialogue. The State Council Information Office of China has released a white paper titled The Belt and Road Initiative, a key pillar of the global community of shared future. The document aims to provide a better understanding of the value of the BRI and what it has delivered over the past 10 years. So how can we evaluate this initiative? What does the BRI mean for the many partner countries who have joined? And can the BRI maintain stability even in today's slow economic growth? To further examine the past decade of the BRI and its current status, I'm glad to be joined by Charles Liu, founder of Hall Capital and a senior fellow at the Taihe Institute. Dr. Said Mahmoud Ali, Associate Fellow at the Institute of China Studies of the University of Malaya, and Harvey Zodan, Senior Fellow at the Center for China and Globalization. Welcome to Dialogue. Uh, Charles, I will start with you. You know, the white paper, uh, you know, the Belt and Road Initiative, a key pillar of the global community of shared future. Uh, it aims to provide more information, more insight about uh, the initiative over the past 10 years. And also it demonstrates you know, China's commitment to building a community with a shared future for mankind. So over the past 10 years, how has the initiative been accepted by countries uh, or regions, you know, all the UN organizations, for example, or uh, during the, the period? During this period, hundreds of projects were executed, mostly in infrastructure, in delivering infrastructure to the Belt and Road countries, in enhancing transportation, enhancing telecommunication, electricity, uh, building electricity plants to supply electricity. This has been, this has benefited many, many developing countries. And this is recognized by developing countries as having made a major contribution to accelerate their development efforts. And it includes, I think, the Chinese expression to become wealthy, you have to build a road first. And this is the basic fundamental thesis of Belt and Road Initiative. Mm -hmm. Well, Charles, you mentioned or you stressed uh, mostly uh, global uh, develop the South, you know, global South or developing countries um, participating in the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, are you seeing that uh, mostly yeah, I mean, the members are developing countries, but not many from the developed world. Well, I don't see the United States as a member of the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, <laughs> there are some Europeans, and they've benefited as well, because as part of Belt and Road, a number of railways, Trans-Eurasian Railway was, was built between China and Europe, and that has really addressed the issue of transport cost higher efficiency, more on time, instead of waiting three months for a ship to arrive, it's two weeks by train. So these things facilitated trading between Asia and Europe significantly as well. So that's, that efficiency enhances, enhancement makes things cheaper and more efficient for deliveries of mm -hmm. goods and services as well as people and ideas. Uh, Harvey, you know, the white paper uh, calls the BRI a pillar, a key pillar of the global community of shared future. 
what's your take on that? It seems like that uh, somehow represents you know, part of the Chinese vision of what kind of a world China wants to see. Yeah, absolutely it does. So when you have this project that 10 years ago uh, was just a proposal and look at it now a decade on and see how much it's accomplished, the 150 plus countries uh, that are involved, the more than $1 billion in projects, the more than 30 different international organizations. So I believe that um, this is a, a demonstration that some countries only uh, mouth a bunch of words, but there's a few countries like China that put their money where their mouth is and work with other countries to have a win-win solution. So I believe that this was a visionary proposal from President Xi a decade ago. And I think what's amazing about it is that it's taken shape yeah, of course there have been bumps in the road. And of course, it's something so big, you have to fine tune it. But I can see here, even sitting in Austria, that um, goods are coming here, as Charles said, much more quickly, much more efficiently with lower shipping costs. And so we're really, what China has been building with these other partner countries is, if you take an analogy to the human body, China has built this whole skeleton but put veins and arteries and all kinds of other organs on it that work and it's not only working in one direction you know there used to be a joke when uh, this was announced that it was the one belt one way in other words this stuff was just going to flow from china to everywhere else but that's not the way it's turned out it's increased the flow of two-way commerce in the countries involved so it's a tremendous achievement and I believe that we're not at the end of this achievement. We're just at the beginning of it. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, you know, having you, you talk, remind me of this, you know, at the very beginning of BRI, I believe, you know, there's uh, much talk of uh, the lack of uh, investment in infrastructure, for example, uh, for the Asia Development Bank at that time. Uh, uh, strongly uh, pointed out that there's a lack of trillions of dollars in infrastructure investment because infrastructure does uh, lead to more connectivity, which leads to growth. So ultimately, BRI programs, can we say, is about, uh, you know, uh, commerce is about investment and trade or economic expansion. It's partly about economic expansion and maybe it's mostly about it. But it's also a lot more than that. Just as the ancient uh, Silk Road had commercial dimensions, it also had cultural dimensions. And the fifth pillar of BRI is about uh, cultural interconnectivity between countries and societies. And I believe that that pillar is a crucially important. Everybody usually just sees the infrastructure and it's massive and it's awesome. But what's being done here is building a community of shared future for uh, the world, for mankind, by having people coming uh, together and getting to know each other better. I think one of the great benefits of BRI is that so many diverse countries are now able through uh, BRI to communicate with each other and work together with each other. And I think that this is why there's a very excellent foundation for going forward in the decades to come. 
yeah, something intangible too here. Uh, Ali, uh, you know, f from your perspective, you know, like uh, where you live, for example, in uh, Malaysia, how do you see BRI platform for cooperation? You know, what does the BRI mean uh, to you know, Malaysia and also the region? Well, um, as you know, that Malaysia has been involved uh, in the BRI enterprise from the very beginning. There have been a number of very large scale projects, and I will mention only one, the East Coast Rail Link, the, that uh, railway line that's being built, uh, connecting uh, Malaysia, the peninsulas east uh, to the west, um, so that uh, ships do not have to traverse the whole length of the peninsula and then um, carry goods um, from one side to the other side. The railway line uh, crosses very difficult terrain, which requires a lot of tunneling uh, and terrain management. And that's all being done as part of the BRI. There are other projects as well, but that is the biggest one. It's also been slightly difficult and challenging. It has been uh, revised and refined. Um, but Malaysia is not the only country, as you mentioned. Uh, our neighbor, Indonesia, has just launched a big metro line, a, um, a very fast, high-speed railway line. Uh, that, that's taken a few years, cost a lot of money, but finally it is up and running. And similarly, there are other projects right across the ASEAN grouping of countries where uh, BRI has brought in a lot of benefits. But I'd like to just, we are talking about the present uh, and the future, but I think looking back as a student of history, just consider this for a moment, that for over 60 years, Many multilateral organizations like the Economic Commission for Asia and the Far East, or ICAFE, then the Economic and Social Commission for Asia and the Pacific, ESCAP, UN Conference on Trade and Development, UNCTAD, UN Development Program, and as you mentioned, Asian Development Bank, even the World Bank have been talking about transcontinental, trans-Eurasian transportation and communication link. They've been holding conferences, drafting blueprints, discussing this, revising this, costing them. But until China began, brought all these disparate programs and ideas together and then launched the BRI, nothing, almost nothing had actually been done. This is a leap of imagination, effort, resources, funding, management, hardware, software. It's an incredible program. It's not been undertaken before in the planet's history. And we just wait. We have, we have just spent 10 years of it, and this may go on for decades. It's quite a dramatic project. Dramatic project, Dr. Ali. Uh, you also compared you know, the Chinese practice with the previous, let's say, lack of practice, uh, you know, lack of realization, let's say. Uh, so does that have something to do with uh, the Chinese own experience? For example, they stress very much about infrastructure, you know, as Charles said, you know, if you want to get rich, build a road. That's the Chinese belief. Uh, and uh, so what they believe in, and yes. probably they say, you know, well, you know what, we want to connect to the countries or regions so we can uh, do business in a better way. I, I just want to point out something in my research, uh, which led to a book a couple of years ago. Um, China's domestic developmental experience has played a very significant role in this. You may remember that when uh, reform and opening up began in 1978, 79, 
it was mostly a very narrow coastal belt along the east of the country, about a dozen centers, major cities and harbors and ports that saw dramatic expansion of economic activity, production, distribution and consumption. Um, and, and China, China's economy uh, became very narrowly focused on the coastal belt and the National Development and Reform Commission became quite concerned about this. And in consultation with the World Bank over the last 30 years, they've moved the concentration of wealth from the east coast to the center of the country and then from the center to the west of the country. And this is quite dramatic. This experience has transformed China not just building of infrastructure, which is a major part of that movement of development, but also how connecting the Chinese people, knitting the Chinese people into a nation, if you like, for the first time that that is really integrated like never before. This has never happened before. And then the discovery was that if you want to develop the West, like Xinjiang, like Yunnan, uh, and the large city uh, area of Chongqing or Inner Mongolia, then you got to give them the ability to connect with their markets uh, uh, where they can move things around. So delegation of authority, particularly to Chongqing and to Yunnan and also to Sichuan, to enable them to engage with neighboring countries, not neighboring provinces, neighboring countries. Get a balanced analysis on both domestic and international topics within the framework of cross-cultural comparisons. This is Dialogue. Indeed. Uh, um, you know, Charles, uh, as uh, Dr. Ali has said, uh, you know, the connectivity or the infrastructure connectivity, you know, does play a very important role in China's own development. Uh, not that long ago, there's a piece, I think, by, uh, by Wall Street Journal saying that, you know, Chinese manufacturers are not moving uh, to other countries like India. They are actually moving inland from the coastal area to the inland provinces. Uh, I think partly probably that it has something to do with uh, uh, this wonderful infrastructure, you know, connection with um, the highway, the railway, high-speed railway in particular. So what does the BRI mean for China? It has meant a number of things. If you recall, when it started in 2012, 2013, it was just after the 4 trillion RMB stimulus program to address the financial crisis of 2008 for the global financial crisis. What happened at that time, I believe, was that that 4 trillion RMB initiative has built tremendous capacity in infrastructure building because most of that 4 trillion went into infrastructure building throughout the country. So there was substantial capacity to do infrastructure building. So for China, three things happened. One is that you take that expertise in infrastructure building and then move it to Belt and Road countries. So you end up with Belt and Road countries benefiting from the expertise gained by China's ex extremely large program on infrastructure. Number two is with Belt and Road, you end up with integrated regional integration 
ASEAN countries is one. Uh, the also the Middle Eastern countries is another. Uh, the North African countries is another. When these countries, if they're very small, there's no efficiency in the market. So market integration, because of Belt and Road support, has created much better sizable markets, so you can have higher efficiency. And the third is Belt and Road allowed China to expand its export capacity and import capacity. You end up with very efficient manufacturing and then to be able to export substantial number uh, amounts of goods through the Belt and Road countries leading to very substantial trade surpluses in China and then accessing these markets is really, really very beneficial. So I think these are the three things that China has gained. And the first thing in terms of using China's expertise by Belt and Road countries involves significant employment opportunities for the Chinese people because these projects that's being conducted abroad required a lot of civil engineers, electrical engineers, and others. And these were provided by China, aside from local employment increases. So there is also that aspect of the Belt and Road, which was very beneficial for China. Mm -hmm. Beneficial for China, but there's also, you know, uh, as, you know, Harvey, as you said, there are bumps on the road, you know, there are accusations, sometimes serious accusations of uh, uh, BRI projects, like, you know, debt trap, for example, you know, many people have uh, uh, actually demystified that kind of accusation, but still, uh, because of the pandemic, because of the Ukraine war, because of the, you know, uh, interest rates, uh, raised in the U.S. So, you know, developing countries, many of them are part of this, uh, this BRI uh, initiative there. So they are facing some debt issues. So, you know, how should we view these issues and how can we solve that? Okay, well, first I wanted to add to something that Charles said. Um, I think that uh, in terms of benefit, it's definitely win-win for all countries. But I think that uh, on, on many levels, uh, China has benefited because uh, it's the Belt and Road has also resulted in something that people don't talk about very much. It's about standardizing technical specifications. So BRI has promoted standardization and thereby it's lowered costs and increased efficiencies. And I think it also benefits President Xi's dual circulation policy by helping to provide components used in Chinese goods, given that we live in a globalized world. And like it or not, everything is intertwined. So decoupling or its near cousin de-risking, they're not really viable options today or tomorrow. But yeah, you're right. People do criticize China uh, BRI initiative uh, as a debt trap. But I think it's just propaganda because there's not been ever one iota of proof. And the fact is that 150 nations and dozens of international organizations are still participating in a billion dollar plus program. I think the proof is in the pudding, as they say. Um, and they say that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. 
So why then do U.S. and EU, for example, have their own half-baked versions of BRI? Uh, I call the U.S. Build Back Better World and EU Global Gateway Initiatives both BRI light because they seem to design, be designed only as marketing ploys to blunt China's effort not to seriously uh, address all the dimensions that BRI has begun to successfully address. So I think all this business about debt traps and stuff and these other uh, half-baked alternatives are just throwing sand uh, in China's face. Uh, but the proof is the fact that the BRI is progressing, it's growing, and it's going to continue to grow in the decades to come. Mm -hmm. uh, well, Dr. Ali, uh, as Harvey mentioned about globalization, of course, we know there's ongoing decoupling or de-risking efforts uh, um, by you know, U.S. and European countries uh, with China here. Uh, some other people would say, you know, BRI is uh, globalization 2.0. Uh, but at the same time, we do realize that there is a process uh, of, you know, people call it a retreat of globalization or deglobalization. Uh, so what's the take of a BRI? You know, what kind of a role it may play in global economic uh, growth here? I think if you're talking about the countries involved in the BRI enterprise, which is 150 plus countries that are directly involved in uh, this project, various projects, part of the uh, terrestrial, uh, this is Silk Road Economic Belt and also the MSR, the Maritime Silk Road, um, and they have a whole diversity of different kinds of programs and projects that are linking economies and peoples and countries and governments and as we just heard standards being unified um, so if this group of countries that are benefiting from bri can persevere through very great difficulties uh, currently and come out of it with demonstrable benefits um, from their involvement in BRI, then it is possible, uh, as has been said, the taste of the pudding is in the eating. Uh, other countries will see this experience as something to gain from, and BRI will then stand out as perhaps an example or a model or a paradigm um, with which to approach the world's economic problems. And the world has numerous economic problems, and the more help we can get the better it is, and BRI might just be a starting point. Mm -hmm. uh, BRI might be a starting point to solve that problem, or you know, massive problems there out. Uh, Charles, as, as a global e economy, you know, the prediction is that they are getting slower. There is a concern, you know, in the major economies, uh, uh, U.S. inflationary pressure, you know, European countries, China. We do see uh, economic slowdown. How will that impact uh, uh, the BRI uh, programs? There's no question there will be an impact on every country in the world, especially given the fact that inflation pre inflationary pressures has reduced consumer demand in Europe and the US. But if you look at trade, trade numbers, there was a decline in the first half of the year in China, but it's picking up again. And the trade between BRI countries, especially the groupings of BRI countries, like ASEAN countries and China, trade between the Middle East and China, the trade between Central Asia and China, is all increasing and increasing substantially. So BRI 
facilitating movements of goods and people and ideas will certainly impact on the decline in the global economy. I think there are other things which are to be built into the BRI, which is also going to stimulate more economic activity, such as digital economy for the BRI, such as green BRI. These are all additives which will enhance further BRI's impact on the economies of the member countries. It will also help to alleviate some of the shortfalls that the global economic downturn has brought about. Mm -hmm. well, Harvey, you seem to be very confident that uh, you know, decoupling, de-risking won't work. Um, and you know, for, for many developing countries, you know, they do benefit from the process of globalization because more trade, more investment, I mean, that ultimately will work for the benefits of their economic expansion. Uh, so with BRI, with more connectivity, uh, so are you meaning that the countries will choose uh, to get connected instead of getting, you know, walled from each other? Uh, yeah, I believe the trend has been and still will be to globalization. I think it's inevitable. We can't go back to a 18th century uh, disconnected world. We need to find ways to work together and to cooperate with each other. And I think that these efforts at uh, uh, de-risking and decoupling uh, are generally going to fail. I think it's going to be efforts like BRI that are going to be successful in the end because they're win-win. And it's not one country or one group of country telling other people what to do or how they're going to benefit and things like that. This is actually about results and it's about participation. BRI is not a top-down model. It's a collaborative model. It's a win-win model. And I think one of the benefits of it is that these uh, countries, so many countries of the world involved in it, have another platform through which to communicate with each other, cooperate with each other, uh, work together with each other. And I think that is another uh, spin-off from uh, BRI that's going to carry us into the future. I think that BRI goes far beyond any of the free trade zones or agreements that have been made, even going back to uh, the GATT, because beyond free trade zones and trade rules and tariff reductions, BRI has a 360-degree focus, and that's policy coordination infrastructure development, investment and trade facilitation, and also financial integration, and what I mentioned before, culture and social exchange. I think these are all important, and this is a program uh, that's designed for people to cooperate with. It's win-win, and I believe it's going to work into the future, even if there's economic or political headwinds from time to time. Well, with that, we come to the end for today's show. Many thanks to our guests. You can also find us on the CGTN app on YouTube. Thank you for being with us. I'm Xu Qinduo. See you next time.